0: Spirit-led life, and I want to start off by saying um, it's apparent in Scripture that it is possible to be a born-again Christian who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit, you're intertwined with Him, yet still be immature in living as a Spirit-led Christian. It's possible to have the Spirit of God And be immature in being led by the Spirit of God. It's also possible for you to have the Spirit of God to be consistently characterized by being led by Him and still have almost, if not infinite, room to grow in being Spirit-led, right? So you may have the Spirit and be immature in being led by Him, you may have the Spirit and be mature in being led by Him, and there's always room for more, right? Paul says, until we attain to the fullness of the stature of Christ, there's room for us to be built up, right? And so our desire is that you are not only a a Spirit-born, a newborn Christian with the Spirit, but that you're actually consistently, increasingly characterized by being led by Him by obeying him, by being sensitive to his leading, right? Now remember, the promise of the Holy Spirit from Acts chapter 2 comes upon all who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for all who believe in Christ. Now also remember, as we've walked through Romans 8 so far, that the Spirit gives life and peace. The Spirit gives us freedom. The Spirit bears witness in our hearts that we're children of God. And the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He intercedes for us before the throne. The Spirit gives us a voice in our suffering, and He bears patience within us while we're going through difficulty. And so with all of that in mind, all that the Spirit does for you, Paul writes in verse 31, as we turn to our text today, what then shall we say to these things? What can anyone say, given all that the Holy Spirit does for you? These truths that we've already gone through, that we're going to go through today, they should stir us up to joyfully keep in step with the Spirit. Right? They should stir us up to walk in victory and authority and in power because we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, leading us. But the reality is when trials come and when suffering abounds, how quickly do we turn our minds from the things of the Spirit to the things of the flesh? When that happens, We're not living a spirit-led life, though we have the spirit. When that happens, we're actually living a self-led life. When we set our minds upon the things of the flesh, that is death. That's what the text says earlier, right? That's being a self-led Christian. And so when difficulties come upon us, when we're faced with the most frustrating of circumstances, there's a common lie That comes to the surface and it comes in different forms as we'll see in the text today but the common lie is that God doesn't love me God must not love me if I'm going through this God can't love me if I'm going through this if he loved me I wouldn't be going through this where is God you know you might actually never say those words But your attitudes and your actions, your response to suffering, even if you don't say those things, often speaks more loudly than your words. And so our text for today is a truth that destroys that lie. This text destroys the lie that God doesn't love you with the truth that in the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. So let's read the text, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you guys pray with me? Holy Spirit, I want to invite you right now to, again, awaken our hearts to the beauty of your everlasting love for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be like Paul, convinced that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. Lord, please speak through me and open our hearts to receive this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So that lie that God doesn't or can't or won't love me, like I said, it, it pops up in different areas of our lives, right? And so as we dive into the text, starting in verse 31, the first area that I think this text speaks to is when life becomes frustrating and difficult, when suffering is upon you, we begin to feel as if the world is working against us, right? You begin to feel like everything is opposing you. And you often even may feel like God himself is opposing you. And when you feel that opposition, your inadequacy rises to the surface. Your lack of things that you think you need rises to the surface. But the truth is, when you feel like God doesn't love you because you're lacking something, when you feel like God doesn't love you because you feel like he's opposing you, the truth is that with the Spirit, you need nothing. That's our first point for today. With the Holy Spirit, you need nothing. Now, you may say, wait a second. I remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, and he said, my Father knows that you need these certain things. Or maybe you remember Paul's words in Philippians 4.19 that my God will supply all your needs. Doesn't it seem like Christians have legitimate needs? Even more than that, it seems like Christians lack the very things that God promises to supply, right? Jesus said uh, food and clothing, all these things will be added to you, right? Right? Doesn't it seem like there are Christians around the world right now who are starving, who are being persecuted with nothing? Is God lying to them when he says, I will supply your every need? Is God unable to keep his promise when Christians lack things that he promises to supply? What do you guys think? Anybody? Is God lying to us? No. All right, good. You guys are awake. All right. Even though it seems like Christians have these legitimate needs, it seems like there's Christians who lack those things that God promises to supply. Could it be that we're misunderstanding that promise? I want to ask you guys, what is the single greatest need of every person in the world? Does anybody know? The single greatest need in your life is to have your sin dealt with. The single greatest need that you have is to have your guilt removed and your relationship with God restored. That's the single greatest need of every person. And look at verse 32. If God is for us, stepping back into 31, if God is for us, which He's already demonstrated throughout Romans 8 that God is for us, who could stand against us? For God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. The fact is that your greatest need to have your guilt removed has already been dealt with because Jesus has been supplied to take your sin away from you, right? That greatest need has already been supplied once and for all. And do you remember Jesus said the words in Matthew 16, what does it profit you if you gain everything in the world, but you forfeit your own soul? In other words, what does it matter if you have all the clothing you need all the food you need the house you need the job you need the money you need what does that matter if your soul is still in your own guilt and you haven't had it removed by christ going on into verse 32 um, Knowing that our greatest need is to be justified, to use Paul's term from Romans, to be justified, to be made right with God. If that's our single greatest need and everything else is not sufficient to justify, let me ask you this. Think about the things that you need on a daily basis. You need food, right? If you go without food for a day, you're going to be hungry, but does that affect the fact that Jesus has justified you No, if you go for a month without food, does that affect the fact that Jesus has justified you? No, if you lose your house, if you lose your clothing, if you lose every family member, does that affect your justification? No. And so what happens, what we see here, in verse 32b, he says, how will God not also with Christ graciously give us all things so what happens is when you begin to understand the importance of your relationship with God being restored when you begin to see that as the primary thing the primary need every other need then becomes just a gracious gift that God is giving you to conform you into his image Everything that we think we need is actually just a gift, a tool, a resource, a servant to bring you into the conformity of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Even though our bodies need food, food is honestly just a tool, a gift, a resource that God gives us that we might live another day for the good and for, for his glory and for um, his goodwill in our lives, Right? And so those needs, once you see your spiritual need before the Lord as the true need that's already been taken care of, everything else is a gracious gift. And all things, when he says, how will he not give us all things? Does that mean that then when we become a Christian, when we are in Christ with his spirit, we can just snap our fingers and have a billion dollars? No, all things though we often misinterpret that, is all things that we need for the Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ, right? Because once you are justified by faith in what Christ has done, the rest of your life is a transformation process until you stand before the Lord in the fullness of His image, right? And so everything is just a gracious gift to serve that purpose how will he not graciously give us all things that we need to be conformed to christ we often think um, again to bring it back to the context when i'm suffering and i don't have what i think i need god must not love me god must be withholding it from me but the reality is sometimes in order for you to take the next step into maturity in christ God has to remove things that you think you need in order to bring the growth and the sanctification that you actually need. And So when you begin to view those lesser needs as a gracious gift for your sanctification, the things that you don't have only serve to magnify what you do have in Christ the things that you lack, the inadequacy that you feel only serves to bring you into greater dependence upon Christ. And so as a point of application, this truth is transformative to your prayer life because when we bring prayer requests to the Lord and everything is a need, that's often because we're more focused on ourselves and not as focused on what the Lord is trying to accomplish through us and in us, right? And so when we approach our prayer as communion with our Father, who is the Father of every good and perfect gift, right? He is the giver of every good gift. He is the one who has promised to give us these gifts, right? When we approach our prayer to Him as asking our good Father for a gracious gift rather than demanding something that we think we need, this unlocks just incredible depths of God's mercy in your relationship to Him in prayer. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask God for things, right? He tells us, bring your request to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. The key is that it's in His name, right? For His will, for our sanctification into His image. That's the key. So when you sit back with that in mind, you look at the things you lack, and you say, if I don't have it right now, maybe I don't need it. If I don't have it, maybe I will need it later, but I don't need it right now. What I need is to turn to the Spirit. Remember that uh, illustration of, of holding the boulder back from crushing you, And there's the Spirit, arm in arm with you, holding the weight of that boulder. Maybe what I need isn't for the boulder to go. Maybe it's for me to be strengthened in the Lord. Mm -hmm. The key is that with the Holy Spirit, once you've received that promise by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you need nothing. Now, there's another lie, another area of our lives that often creeps up and keeps us in slavery. And it's the area of accusation and condemnation. And the lie would say that God doesn't love me because I did this. God can't love me because I did this thing again. God is punishing me because I'm just a insert title here. Well, the truth is, as we continue in Romans 8, that with the Spirit, you cannot be condemned. Let's look at verse 33. He says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who can bring a charge? Now, let me ask you this. If I go out and I commit a crime right now, does that mean that nobody can ever bring a legal charge against me because I'm a Christian? Is that an automatic get-out-of-jail-free card because I'm a Christian? No. If I offend a brother or sister in Christ, if I sin against you, don't you have legitimate cause to bring a charge against me that I've sinned against you? Yes. This doesn't mean that we get out of jail free. What this means is that Nobody can stand before the throne of God and bring an accusation that would remove you from his family. Do you remember what Satan was doing in the book of Zechariah? He was accusing the high priest, right? Standing before the throne, accusing the high priest of all his sin, right? And the fact is that accusations, charges can be true or they can be false. Being charged or accused of something, it doesn't really take into account truth, right? It's just, it could be false. I could bring a false accusation against you, and that's what Satan loves to do. He brings true accusations, and he brings false accusations, all with the purpose of bringing that weight of guilt and shame upon you, that you would sit back and say, oh, wow, I, I am a liar. I did do that. Hmm. God must be withholding his love from me because I just lied again. I just did this again. I just did that again. I've been trying to stop drinking, and I just went and got drunk again. But it's God who justifies. How could anyone bring a charge against you before the judge when the judge has already declared you innocent in Christ? Those accusations don't stand because you're already innocent. And then he keeps going. He brings up condemnation. Not only can no one accuse you in Christ because you've already been declared innocent, who can condemn you? Condemning somebody is not just the accusation, it's the declaration of a guilty verdict. It's the attachment of a label that you are guilty of this. No one can condemn you in Christ. And what happens is we feel condemnation so often when we make a mistake, and when, when we sin, even in Christ, we sit back and we say, I'm just an addict. I'm just a liar. I'm just a lazy person. Therefore, God's love is not coming to me, and so I'm just going to keep on in my ways. I'm just going to give in. I'm just going to do what I want to do. That's the lie that so many Christians fall into. I'm just a blank. But Christ Jesus is the one who died. Think about that. No one can condemn you because Jesus was already condemned for you. Those accusations, that guilty verdict, Jesus steps in front of you and says, I'll take that. I'll take that too. And so nobody can condemn you because Jesus has taken it. Romans 8 says that he has condemned sin, right? He has condemned your condemnation. He was condemned so that you would be free from that. And so who can bring the accusation? Who can bring the condemnation when the judge is God and the judges declared you innocent? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he didn't just die for you. He didn't just take the condemnation. What does it say going on in verse 34? It says not only that, more than that, he was raised and he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. He didn't just give you an innocent verdict, but he's actually innocent at the throne of God, interceding, working on your behalf, conforming you into his image that you might be with him forever. Just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus was condemned for you, but then he rose to exaltation to intercede for you, to work for you, to work in you, for his glory. When your view of God's grace is small, think about that. How big is your view of God's grace? When it's small, you will inevitably live under the accusations and the condemnation that the enemy seeks to bring upon you. But when you're under And your view of God's grace is magnified and it goes deeper and deeper, then you will live under your identity in Christ. When you understand that I am not a liar anymore because I'm innocent in Christ, I am actually a child of God clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, then you will live in the freedom that the Holy Spirit has for us. Does that mean, as Paul would say in Romans 6, that because God has given us this incredible grace, we can just continue sinning? Does it mean that? Yes or no? Can we continue sinning because of God's grace? By no means, he says. The application point for this is that as our, our understanding of God's grace grows and matures, it's a joy to obey. And sin loses its appeal. The power of sin is lessened as we grow in our understanding of God's grace. It's a joy to obey him. I know, especially the kids in here, you got rules at school, you got rules at home. You always feel like you have rules, Right? And sometimes that's how people view the Christian life. We just got a lot of things we can't do. But when you understand what God has done for you in Christ, oh my goodness, it's a joy to obey the law of God. It's a joy to do what's right. How about this as we continue? Maybe some of you feel... Like God's love is withheld from you because you're lacking something, you're in need. Maybe some of you feel like God's withholding love because of your sin, because because of the accusations and the condemnation. Or maybe your suffering is so bad, so painful, so excruciating that there's no way God's love is getting through to you. Maybe that's you. Maybe there's a chronic health condition that you're suffering and you just feel that pain every day and every night and it clouds the love of God. That's the lie that we give into, right? When suffering comes, we believe that lie, right? We feel isolated, we feel alone, we feel separated and then we give into that. We set our hearts and our minds on the things of the flesh, not the Spirit. The truth is that with the Holy Spirit, your suffering actually proves God's love. You're not separated from it. You're not cut off from it. Your suffering is actually proving God's love with the Holy Spirit. Let's read verses 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress... Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Suffering is a reality for Christians. And Paul writes these things not just out of left field somewhere. These were his experience in the Christian life. This was Paul's life. The fact is, as Romans 8 would say, The road to glory goes through suffering. This is a reality for Christians. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. But what does he say? Can these things separate you from God's love? Can they cut us off from God's love? Do they mean that his love isn't for us? No, the reality of suffering, honestly, is it feels, as he writes, he quotes Psalm forty-four, twenty-two. the reality of suffering sometimes is like we're just going to the slaughter, like we're just being killed. And so you sit back and you say, why am I even a Christian if this is my experience? If I'm gonna suffer, why do I even bother? But he says, no, 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 no. You are more than a conqueror through Christ. What does that mean? That's like on stickers and bumpers and every, it's everywhere. You're more than a conqueror. But what does it mean? Think about this. When you go into battle and you defeat your enemy, a conqueror is one who kills the enemy, right? And Paul says you are more than a conqueror. So if we think about our enemy as being this suffering, this circumstance, the the enemy bringing bad things into our lives, whatever it is, think about that as our enemy. You don't just defeat the enemy through Christ, but Christ, by his spirit working in you, actually turns those enemies into your servants to make you into the image of Christ. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Your enemies aren't just defeated. You don't just survive suffering. You don't just make it through to the other side. Those things that stand against you, that bring so much pain by the Spirit of God are actually conforming you into the image of Christ. They're serving for your good and God's glory. And that's how we're more than conquerors. The Holy Spirit, as we hold up that boulder with Him, He's strengthening us. He's consoling us. He's comforting us. He's proving that he's present with us, right? He's interceding for us, testifying in our hearts that God does love us. That's the experience of suffering in a spirit-led manner. When you're arm in arm with the spirit, not asking him to, to remove this thing necessarily, though we do ask, as Dan said, we do ask for miracles, But first and foremost, we look to the Spirit and we ask, Lord, what are you trying to accomplish in me? What is is this for? How can I be conformed into Christ through this suffering? And it's with that heart attitude of humility and faith in your God that those enemies then serve to strengthen you in your Christian walk. You don't just get through to the other side, the Spirit of God makes your enemies your servants. And he works all things for your good and his glory. But even more than that, even more than that, Paul says, I am convinced of this. This isn't just an idea. I'm convinced of this. There's absolutely nothing, not, not death, not life, not even angels or rulers or pr- things present, not even things to come. Think about that. Think about all the genocide and the terrors that have happened throughout history and all of the persecution that is yet to happen in the church, in this world. None of that can separate you from God's love. Think about all the power of demonic forces that seek to enslave us and oppress us and, and try to separate us. They can't. They can't do it. Nothing can can separate you from God's love. He says not any height, not any depth, not anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no opposition, no accusation, no condemnation, and no separation for those who have the Holy Spirit who are in Christ Jesus. And so, when we walk through suffering aware of this, when our hearts are focused on this reality, the Spirit bears fruit in us. That's what the Spirit does, right? When we walk in the Spirit, He bears His fruit. When we walk in the flesh, we bear the fruit of the flesh. And so, by walking through suffering in the Holy Spirit, step in step with Him, As he bears his fruit in your life, this is, to use Dan's word, this is an experiential thing, right? This is something that people can look in your life and see the fruit of you walking with the Spirit. This is something where you can look at your own life by experience and say, God has done this in me. There's no way that this fruit would be evident in my life if it was just me. There's no way I would have this joy. There's no way I would have this peace but for the Spirit of God doing it in me. And the fact is, when you look at the text, it actually doesn't say anything that we're to do. The application is that God's already done it all and is doing it all. And so we have to sit back And let the Lord just open up our hearts to this truth. We have to take our minds off the flesh onto the spirit and trust him every step of the way. The fruit of the flesh is anger and bitterness, drunkenness, sexual immorality, frustration, discouragement. That's the fruit of walking by the flesh, right? But when you approach difficulty and suffering and persecution, asking, Lord, what are you trying to do in me? How can I grow more into the image of Christ? How can I depend on you more? The fruit of the spirit is joy, peace, love, kindness, goodness, self-control. Right. And guys, that is our heart's desire for you is to see you walking in the experience of God's everlasting love knowing being convinced by the spirit that you can't be cut off from God's love and and that's how the spirit proves his love by doing these things in us right as we experience his fruit being born in our lives the 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 love of God is without question without separation, it's without question, and all those lies that we give into are shattered. The fact is that if you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. Would you guys bow your heads as we close?
1: in Christ with the Spirit. to speak to you, even as you guys have come in. You guys know that from hanging out you through. So, give some respect to the Word and what God's doing here. So, take a moment, folks. Take a moment and just, like, think through. Am I believing these lies? Am I getting my gaze to Jesus? And, and if there's some gap in all of that, this is the time. This is the time to say, Lord, I renounce any lies that I believe in. Will you come and